Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 248 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hi, Adam. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm doing good. I, um, yeah, I'm good. I just, I'm good, I guess. It's just, that's it. <laughs> um, how are you? <laughs> great. I'm great. Yeah. <laughs> One of these times we'll be like, It'll sound less organic, but we'll be like, hey, you know what we should talk about before we start recording? Like, we should actually cover what we're going to, like, intro, but that's okay. Um, ooh, I have a funny story. Okay. Um, so, yesterday, a week ago, we had some folks from uh, Rakuten, Overdress Parent Company, in our office. And so, when that happens, as is customary with any company that's owned by another company, like, when someone important is coming... We get, like, an HR email that's like, hey, just, like, remember, clean up everything around your desk. Right. Uh, which is standard. And so I started cleaning up my desk, and I got, like, really hyper-focused on it. And so over the past couple of days, I've just been periodically, like, getting rid of stuff from my desk because I have all of these drawers that have, like, marketing materials that I helped create seven years ago. And I just yeah. never thought about them again, and they are in there. So yesterday, I got super tunnel visiony, and I had headphones on, listening to an audiobook, and I cleaned out my entire desk. Like literally, like when I say I cleaned out my entire desk, no less than ten people came up to me yesterday and thought I was like quitting or had been fired. Because <laughs> like as I, I realized why, like, as I was cleaning out, I literally I had headphones on, like I had this very almost like somber face on me just because I was zoning out. Um, <laughs> like literally, like ten people came up to me yesterday, like wait, are you leaving? I was like, why would you say that? Like, your desk is empty. And I was like, oh, it does look like that. It does. Because I came over and had the same reaction. I was like, what happened to your desk here? I I figured out why. It's because with the building a new home and like living with my parents and like, this is the only thing I can control. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Subconsciously, I was like, I have control over this. Yep. So, um, but yeah, I, I didn't realize the fact until like literally four people came up at the exact same time and were like, did we miss an email from your director or something? I was like, what are you all talking about? And I was like, oh, yeah. right. Yeah, no, yeah. not leaving. Doing the whole life, what is it, life changing magic of tidying up or whatever like that, that book is called. I didn't read it, but I assume it's just cleaning makes you feel better. Something like that. Um, if people want to get a hold of us, Joe, how can they do that? Easiest thing to do is go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com. There you can link uh, get links to all of our social which is Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. You can also email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. And our website has a little fun contact form as well. Yeah. Um, and also on there, we have our reading community, which you can join, which is on Viber. And I want to say, like, the community continues to grow. And my favorite thing about it is if Jill or I are just busy and don't post things for a few days or are frankly just lazy sometimes and don't put anything in there, we have nothing new to say. Like the organic conversation that happens with other people offering book recommendations and stuff, just like listeners, it's super cool. So I highly recommend joining it. It's one of the few online communities that I belong to that are, it's like entirely positive and wonderful. Agreed. So also every once in a while you get cat and dog pictures in there, which is great. Also true. (laughs) Um, Today's interview is one I did with Joe Abercrombie. I actually just interviewed him a day before we are... Uh, recording this but he wrote the ridiculously popular first law fantasy trilogy um 
and he's writing a second trilogy in that world, and he has some standalone books as well in there. Um, but two things. One, he's writing a new trilogy, and also his first law books have recently been, they created some beautiful new covers for them, which is super cool. Um, so the publisher reached out to us and said, we'd love to have you chat with him. And he was definitely one of those people where I would ask him a question, and then he would just pontificate for like five minutes, and it would be a fantastically eloquent answer. So I had like 20 questions pre- prepared for him. I think I got like five. Those are always fun. And it was like 35 minutes in, and I was like, Joe, I got to let you go. You, you're you writing a trilogy right now. I'm taking up too much of your time. Uh, so yeah, I if you're a fan of fantasy novels or if you wanted to get into them, I highly recommend it. He mentions um, near the end that, you know, he actually had stopped reading fantasy for a while when he was like in his mid-20s and had gotten away from the genre entirely and then someone gave him a Game of Thrones. And he's like, I know how these things are going to work. And he's like, and then he read it and he's like, oh, wait, fantasy is amazing. Yep. So... Uh, yeah, it, it was cool. Good conversation, and I appreciate his time because he's a very busy man. So, uh, Anything you think people should know about? Anything else? I can't. I don't think so. Okay. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoy this interview with the splendid Joe Abercrombie on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Adam again, and today I'm ridiculously excited to be joined by fantasy writer extraordinaire Joe Abercrombie, whose massively popular First Law trilogy is being re-released with some gorgeous new cover art, and he's also currently working on a new trilogy in the First Law world, and was gracious enough amongst all of that to give us some time and, and talk about both those things today. So first off, Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. It is a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So I want to kind of dive into some of the, the new stories you're writing in just a little bit. But before we do that, like I mentioned, um, your your first law original trilogy was very, very popular. And it's being reprinted with some brand new cover art. And it's fantastic if anyone hasn't seen it yet. It's, it's really gorgeous. But I'm curious, as an author whose works merit you know, reprinting and remain incredibly popular. Do you have any say in the process of the new cover art, or is that something that you're just completely hands-off on? I have an awful lot more say than my publishers and their art directors would like, <laughs> I expect, but probably still less than I would like. Um, I do, I do. to be fair, yeah, get, get quite a lot of say these days. I'm not sure how that happened. Uh, <laughs> writers don't often get much say. And there are, in a way, good reasons for that, because I think, you know, publishers understand their market, and often that market is slightly different to the home territory of an author. Um, So they kind of understand the local factors and what sells, and, you know, there's a degree to which they need to be able to, to do their own thing. But for some reason, I've always kind of been quite involved in the presentation of the books. I mean, certainly there's a degree to which the more books you sell, the more weight your word gets. That's certainly true. Um, and I think with this particular rebranding, the publishers just were keen to get my input and, and make sure I was happy with it, which is very nice of them. And we did have a fair bit of back and forth over them and discussion of the approach and of, of the detail of it too. But I'm very happy with the way it turned out. You know, it's um, it's always nice when things get rebranded in that way because 
is a real vote of confidence, I think, from the publisher saying they want to, you know, devote some resources to repackaging it, and and that creates some uh, momentum in the marketplace and among booksellers and people, I think, and perhaps, you know, in an ideal world, it'll reach. Uh, an audience that perhaps you haven't quite reached with previous covers. So it's, it's a chance to kind of extend the reach a little bit, which is always nice to do. And kind of to that point, you know, everyone always says don't judge a book by its cover, but it, there's a saying like that because we all do judge books by its cover. So I have to, I have to imagine it feels pretty rewarding to feel like you have some control over that because a lot of authors probably feel like, okay, well, I wrote an incredible story, but if i you know if if the cover art is is plain or doesn't stand out i mean there's there's not much they can do about it so it has to feel kind of nice to to know that you did have uh you know a, a decently sized role in in the rebranding yeah and i mean books are, you know the, the the covers of books are are hugely important and people do make you know a lot of buying decisions especially for for a new writer i guess on, on the basis of how a book kind of looks and feels in the hand and and the blurb and, and all these sort of things. And the, there's a lot of different factors to balance when you're designing a cover, you know, especially with a genre book, with a fantasy book, you want to make sure that it works for the kind of core audience, you know, that doesn't turn off the core audience, but at the same time, you want to feel like it's reaching perhaps outside that to a more general readership, if there is such a thing. Um, there's all kinds of different segments in the marketplace you can kind of be subtly aiming at. But at the same time, there's just a general, you know, desire to get something that looks nice, that looks good, that represents the book itself. So it's always a huge, a huge juggling act. And with these, with these new covers in particular, I think the books have had the same cover since they first came out, more or less. Different treatments on, on the same theme for, I guess it's 12 years now. Mm-hmm. So they've been very successful, those covers. And so, in a way, if you've got bad covers, it's easy to do better ones. <laughs> If you've got good and quite successful covers, it makes your task that, that much harder to, to get something new that offers you something different. But hopefully these new ones are kind of quite graphic and, and strong and contemporary. That was, that was the feeling we wanted to go for. Well, there's also, you know, I'm sure people you know, don't want to sleep on the fact that big fans of your, of your books already are, are definitely going to want the new covers as well. So that, that always works out well for you as an author, I imagine. <laughs> If I can sell six books to the same person, then, you know, I, 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 who am I to complain? Yeah. Um, okay, so you're the first trilogy, they have titles that are that come from, you know, as a, as a literary nerd, I, I'm a big fan of, of kind of the, the origin of the names of this book. So your first three books in, in the First Law series is The Blade Itself, Before They Are Hanged, and Last Argument of Kings. And I, I know that these are kind of from... Um, you know Homer and and Heinrich Hein and King Louis the Fourteenth, you know between each of the different the names of them. So, how did you yeah. come up with the idea to to use these other you know famous both famous people, famous quotes and things like that for the names of your stories, and then just to kind of follow up on that, did did those particular people that you were using quotes from influence the stories in any way? Yeah, I mean, I, I think like all of my best ideas, I, I stole it from cleverer people. <laughs> I think that's generally my approach to writing as far as possible. Coming up with new ideas is, is very hard work, so wherever possible I like to use ones that have a nice pattern of age and, and use on them. I don't know, I'd always liked those uh, 
those titles like For Whom the Bell Tolls, you know, that have uh, come from something else and mm -hmm. there's a fragment of something else and there's, there's just something wonderfully uh, mysterious about them. You know, you want to understand what's the, what's the larger quote, how does it relate to the book itself. Um, and so I'd always like that approach and I guess that's how I ended up using it in a way. Funnily enough, I'd written all the books long before I thought about giving them titles. <laughs> and so when I sold the books, they didn't have titles. That was one thing that I needed to do. And uh, so having written them, I think I had written them with, you know, quotes at the front of the, the different parts they were mm -hmm. split into. And it was really a case of finding, you know, quotes that also had something titular inside them that I could pull out. Um, I guess it makes you look cleverer than you are, you know, <laughs> using quotes from people who are like, like Homer and so on. And so, you know, some are from books I've read and I've, I've run across. Some are from, you know, quotes I've seen quoted elsewhere. Some I'm, I'm hardly even conscious exactly of where they derived from originally, but I just like that sense of, you know, having something from the real world as well that ties into the, the fantastic world that I'm kind of working with. I think it grounds it and gives it a sense of of something concrete, you know? So I try and find quotes that are relevant to the action, relevant to the themes of the book, and then hopefully the titles will grow organically from there. <laughs> um, so, you know, do you think, you know, because you kind of mentioned that you, you found those quotes after the fact, were were you looking for quotes that kind of fit the, you know, the the settings and or like the political landscape of your novels, or was it really more so just trying to find a quote that fit the overall feel of the story that you were telling? I think a kind of a mixture of both, really. I mean, you you'll never find, especially with a, a big, wide sweeping fantasy novel that has a lot of characters and a lot of settings and a lot of different kinds of action in it you'll probably never find one quote that epitomizes everything mm -hmm. but you know perhaps one says something about politics and one says something about war one says something about the nature of violence and one about the nature of humanity you know and built up together they give you some sense of the overall i mean red country for instance which was my take on a on a sort of fantasy western mm -hmm. The quotes in there were all taken from, I suppose, figures of the old West mostly, and you know, commentary on the nature of the West. Some from the time, some from later on. So you know, there's one from Mark Twain and people of that kind talking about the frontier and the wilderness. So I try to find ones that you know are of the type and, and relate. In the heroes, which is about about war generally, they're mostly you know um, quotes from people talking about warfare from soldiers from generals but also a couple of random ones about heroism and about heroes more generally mm -hmm. so i guess they're kind of they're pulled from throughout and, and if you you're putting one at the start of a part you hope in some way that might you know you get at something that's going on in that part that gets to the heart of what it's about but there's no hard and fast rules <laughs> you just kind of pull out whatever seems to feel right i guess yeah, I feel I feel like when you put them at the beginning of a, a part like that, like you do, it 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 does definitely help kind of set the tone. It it for a reader, like you sort of understand what you're getting into before you know what you're getting into, I suppose. Yeah, and it gives you something to think about. I always find when mm -hmm. I, when I kind of find it in other 
in other books. It's, it's something to chew on anyway at the start. <laughs> um, so obviously you've written books both in and out of the world of the first law series and you know there's the original trilogy and you mentioned there's some standalones and then you've also of course written full stories outside of this world so as the popularity of you know this world that you've created continues to grow and expand do writing these books feel differently for you as a as a writer personally i think certainly there was a big moment after finishing the first trilogy, um, because that was something I'd been thinking about all my life in a way, and it drew on all my reading up till that time and all my experiences up to that time and my own opinions about fantasy. It was really my take on a classic epic fantasy trilogy. Many of the characters had sort of been with me since childhood and then had developed and changed in my mind as I kind of grew and changed and my opinions about the world sort of became more adult, I suppose. Um, so that had been with me for years, and I never thought past writing those three books. You know, when you set out to write a big fantasy trilogy, the idea of getting to the end of one book seems very remote, let alone the idea of finishing the whole thing. Um, and so it wasn't until I was kind of well into writing the third one, and I had a deal at that point, and I think the first book had, had been out a while, second one was about to come out, and my editor said to me, you know, what are you going to do next? And I had this horrible realisation that that wasn't it. You know, there'd be more books, potentially, if I wanted to make a career of this, I'd, I'd you know, have to write 20, 30, 40, 50 more books. <laughs> and uh, I, at that time, I had none of the kind of, you know, I had no, I'd used the characters, I'd used the ideas. Um, so it was about making new stories uh, on, on much more of a limited schedule, you know, with some degree of expectation from readers. And so when I came to write the three standalones, that was very different in feel, at least to begin with, you know, because all this stuff had been used up in a way and I had to find new ideas on, on, on the clock and write new characters from scratch who didn't go right back into my childhood. And that was quite unsettling and difficult because I think, you know, without realising it, when I wrote those familiar characters and those, that, that story that had been with me a long time, it didn't come out effortlessly, but there was a degree to which that it was, it was natural to me, those voices and so on had been with me a long time. And when it came to writing new settings and new characters, you know, it was very unsettling. It was like typing with gloves on. You know, it felt very rough and fumbly and, and not natural at all. Mm -hmm. um, and so it took a long, you know, a, a process of readjustment, definitely, when writing... My fourth book, Best Served Cold, was, was sort of my difficult second album, I suppose, <laughs> is the comparison. Um, it was definitely tough to write. But over time, I kind of just started to realise that every book will be difficult when you first sit down to write it. And often it's not until you get to the end of a book that you really start to understand what it's about and what you're trying to do. And for me, it's in the, the revision that happens after that first draft is done that, that you start to kind of boil it down into something that that is coherent and makes better sense, I guess. So, you know, definitely it's it's changed over time and has gone from being, you know, a, more of a an amateur inspiration to more of a professional craft, I suppose, if mm -hmm. you can if you can say that. Do you you mentioned writing the first draft. For the first three novels, did you write those all at the same time or were they like separate projects entirely? Well the first 
three, the first trilogy is really a very much a, a linked story, mm-hmm. like Lord of the Rings. You know, the, the right. books don't particularly stand on their own, really. Probably less so than would be sensible. I think if I was, you know, the, the very idea of writing a huge fantasy trilogy as your first project is not very sensible <laughs> anyway. But uh, if I'd been thinking more carefully and with, more reasonably, I would probably have made each of those books standalone a lot more because I think that's, you know, quite sensible to do and probably more rewarding for readers. But at the time, I was kind of just imitating, you know, what I knew. Um, and so I wrote them, yeah, as, as very much as, as linked stories in one block. But I think I kind of wrote the first. And, and as I was writing the first, I, I spent a lot of time going over the opening chapters. I'd, I'd write a paragraph. I'd revise it. I'd think about how to redo it, what worked, what didn't work. I'd cut it down. Then write another paragraph, and I'd do the same. And then I'd cut them both mm-hmm. and start again. You know, And I spent a lot of time going over and over and over just working on voice, thinking about where to use dialogue, where to use thought, how much action to have, what to describe, what not to, and just experimenting and, and I suppose just playing with it and, and enjoying playing with it. Um, I spent a lot of time, you know, on those first few chapters, if anything. But still, um, as I was going through the rest of the first book, I was revising a lot as I went. And when I got to the end of the first book, I revised a lot. Um, and I guess at that point I started to think, you know, if I was going to take this seriously, I'd spent two or three years writing that book. Um, I should probably send it off to publishers and start seeing if I had any chance of getting it published because I really had no idea. You know, mm-hmm. I, I I liked it, but that was very different from imagining anyone else would like it. Um, and so I guess I was halfway through the second book by the time I, I managed to get some interest. But it took a little while to do that. The reason that I ask is that I have seen on, on your website for the the second trilogy, you ba- you recently just finished up writing basically a draft of the whole thing. Is that correct? Yeah, it <laughs> is. Yeah, a mad plan, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it felt like the best way to do it. I, I guess you know I was lucky in that I'd, I'd sort of reached a point in my career where I could persuade a publisher to wait. <laughs> There's always a, a degree of kind of pressure to get the next book out and I think you can get into this um, you know mindset where you're you're rushing to get the next thing into the marketplace and keep your name out there and give all your old books a push and keep them on the shelves and there's that you know commercial pressure I think however successful you are in a way the more successful you are the worse it gets you know you have this pressure to to get the next book out and that doesn't always work well either creatively or commercially I think sometimes because you end up maybe going for an over-optimistic date, then you miss the date and things get put back and, you know, booksellers get annoyed or your, your tours have to be cancelled and it becomes a, a mess, you know. Uh, so it felt like, if I possibly could, when I was writing standalone books, you know, it was fine to just write them one at a time, but going back to writing, you know, one big unified trilogy, I felt like much the best result would be if I could write all three together because I really didn't want to get to the end of a third book and then look back and think oh damn (laughs) only I could change that first one but it's been published two years ago Um, if I've had a brilliant idea this character if this character was just a woman then you know but unfortunately that character's now a man or whatever as it is though having written the whole thing 
I can, you know, get to the end and think, okay, what's this book actually about? What do I need to do? What do I need to change? How can I smooth out the arc of a character or, you know, introduce a plot point early on? And you can then understand, you know, what's important and what's not and, and you know, cut things, move things around. So it just gives you that freedom and that flexibility to make it as coherent as you possibly can. This is the hope. But also commercially or you know from a business standpoint the hope is that you can you know go to your publisher and say okay we've got three books and you can do whatever you like with them you can publish them you know one a year or whatever you think is going to work best and totally rely on them existing and uh, I should be able to tighten each one up relatively quickly to get them ready and so it gives them an opportunity to kind of you know get behind it and commit resources to it and hopefully give it the kind of big push you always want to get so it seemed like the best option creatively and commercially the downside of course was you know a long a long hiatus while i got it all together um and just the general sense of authorial doubt that you always have about things inevitably lingers um and just takes a little a little while longer to dispel i mean i feel like it has to be Nice peace of mind for your readers, though, just because you don't have to worry about like a winds of winter situation here where they, you know, they had to wait a little bit longer, but they know that all three of them are coming. Like, I have to imagine you've had some some readers tell you that they love that all three of them have been written. Yeah, although, of course, they have the doubts, you know, (laughs) very wisely that, that they will get everything on time because, you know, stuff goes wrong and big revisions need to be done. And I suppose they've heard before, yes, this book will come out on this day, and then, you know, it doesn't emerge. So I think they are sensibly reticent. Um, and I am as well, you know. I, I wouldn't, I would hate to promise anything firmly, because you just, you don't, never know what happens. Um, but I think in the end, people would rather wait a while for a first book of a, of a series, you know, and then get those three in a predictable and timely manner than get a first book quickly and then end up twiddling their thumbs not sure what's gonna happen so to me that just feels like the kind of the most sensible way to do it um and as i say it was sort of the right time in in my career to to try that approach i suppose something else i've seen when it came to work on the new trilogy and on your you know on social media and, and on your website you went through the fact that obviously you did a reread of your original trilogy and all, all, all the other books in the, the series, and the standalones and, and the trilogy to kind of make sure that you, you had everything in order. So first off, I love that you went, you know, kind of told people how you were feeling about, you know, the original stories. But what were like a couple of the takeaways that you had when you were going back and uh, kind of uncovering this world that you've created for the first time in a while? Well, there was certainly, uh, you know, the the kind of theoretical purpose of, of rereading everything is to try and remember all the characters and the relationships between them and the history of the people and the history of the countries and, and so that you are kind of factually accurate, at least. And I suppose also to make sure that, you know, physical details of characters you've got right. Injuries often, in my case, surprisingly <laughs> enough, you know. Which leg did they lose? Um, that that kind of thing, because you'd hate for it to be the wrong one. Um, what kind of wedding ring did they wear? Mm-hmm. You know, details of that kind that you can just 
drop in one place or another and it's a useful kind of you know detail to remember and then often it was because i often have central characters in one book who will then become kind of more background or secondary later on just reminding yourself kind of what the voice of that character is like and perhaps some of their history because you forget oh yeah that person was at that battle and met that person and had that conversation with that person so it, it helps to kind of you know refresh your memory um but generally it was it was quite it was a good experience actually i think it's easy to get bored at books if you read them over and over and when you're a writer inevitably you do read every book many times you know revising it reviewing it doing a copy edit doing a, a run through the page proofs and so you need to let it lie for a while after you finished it. Mm -hmm. And it was long enough after I last read them, the standalones particularly, for me to actually be occasionally surprised by things and think, oh, that was, that was quite good. <laughs> that was a good idea. Um, and generally it's always, you know, I quite enjoy reading the, the books after they're finished. It's while I'm writing them that it's more, it's more troubling. But it ended up producing a, a good 14 or 15 pages of of notes of one kind or another, mm -hmm. some of which will find their way into things. Um, and as I say, injuries often, you know, a character's got a, a, a cut on his chin that he picked up that I'd totally forgotten about. And so, you know, when describing him, that would be clear and obvious. And for the attentive reader, hopefully, they'll think, oh, yeah, I remember this yeah. on his chin. I, I know how that happened. <laughs> so it's nice to kind of have, you know, the as meticulous a, a memory of what's gone on as you can. So I... I have to ask, are you able to kind of separate yourself from, you know, Joe the author for, to Joe the reader? And, you know, I'm just imagining, like, going back and reading something and seeing something that maybe is a little problematic and, and getting irritated with yourself. Or, But are you able to kind of see the story as a reader as opposed to the person who spent so many hours creating this world? I think certainly you whether you can come back to it as a, as a reader rather than as the writer of it, it's hard to say, hard to say whether you can separate yourself to that degree. And obviously you write to your own taste very much, so it'd be surprising and disappointing if you didn't still like it, you know. Mm -hmm. But certainly your own tastes change and your own opinions change and you develop over time and you, your own voice develops and so... There are things both in terms of the detail of the way that it's written and also larger decisions you've made that you think, ah, that was a mistake, you know, mm -hmm. or I could have done that better or, you know, that character was wasted or this plot line didn't get tied off well enough. There's a multiplicity of those things for sure. Mm -hmm. And different things strike you during different rereads. This is actually the, the second or third time I've done this because obviously I did it with other earlier books mm -hmm. and... Um, it was noticeable that some of my opinions from the last read-through weren't necessarily the same as they were this time around. So different things certainly strike you. But, yeah, undoubtedly there are a whole host of things that you see with distance. You drop the ball on or you, or you fumble. But, you know, that, I think, is, is fine. There's no need to be kind of overly self-critical about that. You can, kind, you can celebrate what you feel worked well while at the same time thinking, ah, next time I could do better with this or I could do better with that or, you know, that character could have done could have done better. So, yeah, you look for the things that you did wrong because I think those are, that's the way you get better, partly. 
So, this is kind of a loaded question, so I'm sorry in advance, but do you have a favorite character to write? And if so, is it the same favorite character that you like as a reader? That's interesting, actually. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a big believer in favorites as a kind of concept generally, mm-hmm. only in that, you know, if someone was to say, what's your favorite song? Well, you know, there's loads of songs I love. <laughs> How do you compare, mm-hmm. you know, some, some with another? And, and likewise with, with characters, especially as a writer, the characters serve kind of very different purposes. Um, and it's kind of, you know, you might like a certain spice, but you wouldn't necessarily put six times as much of that one favourite in <laughs> instead of six different ones, sure. you know? You, you need the right thing at the right time. I love a screwdriver, but when I need to hammer a nail in, the screwdriver is not the appropriate tool for the job. Um, so, you know, they serve different purposes, but certainly some are more successful than others. And I think often for me, the characters that do the sort of heavy lifting of the story, the most central characters, are often the more difficult ones to write because they're the ones that kind of take time to develop. Um, if they're the kind of engine of the story, if you like the person who's who's really driving events then you know calibrating their their kind of motives and their action and all those things that can take some time and effort and energy and often they'll you know be dominant in terms of page count and so there needs to be more variety to them and that that sometimes isn't easy so they're often quite a challenge and need a lot of refining and, and changing as you go whereas the more incidental characters if you like um that sometimes have much stronger, more powerful, more vivid, maybe less realistic, less everyday, you know, those kind of voices. I find those often happen quite easily and, and are more fun to write, but in a way they're doing less of the work, so it's, it's kind of easy for them to be easy. Mm-hmm. Um, so some are certainly more effortless and come out. So, you know, in the, in the first book, first trilogy the dogman's chapters just happened very easily and effortlessly and and barely needed to be revised because they were written in a kind of very conversational earthy sort of way where you know the language didn't need to be made precise or to be refined or fine-tuned too much they just you know spilled out quite effortlessly and and worked quite well in best of call the character like you know Morvia or friendly that are very much secondary characters with a very strong voice they happen very easily and they, you know they have a comic element to them often as well so there's a kind of there's a, there's a fun to them that maybe the central characters don't quite have i think Koska, who's a kind of drunken world-weary mercenary always worked very well and i think he's one who you know if there's one character whose every utterance really you know makes me smile as a reader <laughs> in a way then he perhaps has worked one of the best so there's many that have worked that have worked well and sort of been successful for what they do, but I certainly couldn't pick one single favorite. I don't think <laughs> that's fair. Um, when you are working on your own kind of fantasy world and fantasy stories as a writer, as a reader, do you find yourself steering away from the fantasy genre, or are you trying to read some of your contemporary authors out there to to see what they're doing? I guess just as a reader. What do you gravitate towards when you are working on books? Yeah, yeah. Um, I read hardly any fantasy these days, um, which perhaps is a shameful thing to say as a fantasy writer, but mm. I find that it's kind of a little 
too close to home mm-hmm. generally but I kind of get a twin problem which is on the one hand I feel like I'm often overly critical because I read it like it's my own stuff mm-hmm. and I'm thinking oh I need to change that sentence need to use a different verb need to you know rework that paragraph and I get into an editorial mode that is not enjoyable particularly <laughs> um, and on the other hand I find I can kind of get distracted and sort of drawn towards the style of a book uh, so my own writing will get a bit distorted by what I'm reading sometimes uh-huh. and so I try to avoid reading you know people who are too close to what I do because I feel like you know it's too it's, it's too close to what I do in a way and readers are quite likely also going to be reading the same stuff I don't want them to feel like there's a some sort of crossover there I prefer to get my influences from you know, outside the genre, as far scattered and as widely scattered as I, as I can. So I tend to read a lot of non-fiction mostly, actually, mm-hmm. these days. Um, and fiction that is, you know, related to what I'm working on. So, I mean, for this, this new trilogy, for example, it has a, a kind of early industrial feel to it as the world is developing and kind of moving into a slightly more modern phase. And so I've been reading a lot about lot of non-fiction about the industrial revolution and about the you know the french and russian revolutions and also um you know fiction of the that kind of deals with some of those similar topics both written at the time and written more recently so i tend to kind of try and submerge myself in that you know field that i'm working in and and generally Hopefully that kind of both gives me some specific ideas about setting and about character and also just the tone kind of is, is there in my in my head generally when I'm writing. Um, for, for Red Country, say, the Western, same thing. I read a lot of Westerns and mm-hmm. uh, had to play Red Dead Redemption for many, many hours. <laughs> you know, I had to explain to my wife for work uh, and watch a lot of old Westerns and watch Deadwood again and things like that, you know. Uh, for The Heroes, which was about about war really and about battles I, I kind of read a whole lot of military um, history and, and non-fiction about warfare which I kind of had done in the past as well uh, and then you know also novels and accounts and journalism about war and you know watched various documentaries and, and films and things of that kind so I've kind of tried to steep myself as much as possible in in the kind of area that I'm working on while steering largely clear of, of kind of the immediate neighbours in fantasy really i mean as uh, as research goes red dead redemption is not so terrible that's not a not a terrible way to spend your your research time well absolutely i mean you want to you know have quality influences <laughs> of course so you know it's important to do that and, and naturally when the when the second one comes out later this year i will regrettably you know have to plow many hours of dedicated work time into playing that as well absolutely got to be done um do you remember kind of the fantasy book when you were younger then that sort of made you fall in love with the genre? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And, and you know, as a, as a kid in, in my teens and my early 20s, I, I read a vast amount of fantasy, which is where the kind of love for it, I think, comes from, really. Lord of the Rings first, mm-hmm. a little-known British trilogy. don't know <laughs> if you're aware of that one, Tolkien. I've heard of it once right or twice, there. yeah. Uh, Good, oh no, yeah. Um, I mean, that was, as for many, many people, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. was was kind of my my gateway into it, I suppose. Uh, You know, I can't even remember not knowing The Hobbit 
I mean, that goes, my parents were reading that to me when I was just yeah. so small, I can hardly even remember it. It was just always there, really. And then Lord of the Rings, when I was uh, that bit older, and I used to read Lord of the Rings every year. I used to read it every Christmas, or kind of around Christmas and, and winter time. And, uh, yeah, I mean, huge, huge influence, obviously. And then mm-hmm. also, I think, you know, at that time, a lot of the kind of commercial fantasy that really started to spring up in the 80s and 90s, Dragonlance, certainly, was, was a big one for me. Mm-hmm. And um, then things like uh, Le Guin's Wizard of Earthsea, and a lot of Michael Moorcock books at that time as well, and all kinds of others, really. And I was playing a lot of Dungeons & Dragons and role-playing games of that type also during that period, so I was really kind of up to my eyes in fantasy. And I think perhaps, you know, as I got towards leaving home when I was 17 or 18, that was around the time, or maybe a little before that, I started feeling, you know, a bit stale on fantasy because I'd read so much so fast and, and felt like I was seeing the same thing over and over and got a bit bit stale with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, started reading all kinds of other things. I'd always read all kinds of other things, but got into reading crime and, you know, things like James Elroy and all sorts of other writers of that type and um, started wondering, you know, in a, in a rather diffuse way, you know, why people weren't doing something more, you know, shocking and unpredictable and character-focused and and morally grey within the arena of fantasy. Mm-hmm. And then someone gave me Game of Thrones to read, a Game of Thrones, I should say. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of, oh, no, man, I, you know, I've read all this fantasy stuff, I know exactly how this works, I know, I know exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> and obviously that book, you know, really blew my doors off because it was, it was very much clearly commercial fantasy in that sense, you know, very much epic fantasy. But at the same time, had that kind of that shock value and and you suddenly didn't know what the hell was going to happen and it just felt like you know my eyes were opened and so i think really you know game of thrones was unsurprisingly perhaps a big influence on me at that time and made me think ah oh, you can do something sort of shocking and dark and unpredictable with mm-hmm. uh, with fantasy and, and definitely was a big influence in sort of persuading me to to try my hand at it myself mm-hmm. Um, well, I know that you are a very, very busy man, so I just have one last question for you. You know, with the, the books that are currently out and, and the ones that will be coming in, in the upcoming years here, what do you hope readers take away from this world? I suppose I, I, the, the thing I would really like them to take away is a burning desire to buy the next one. <laughs> That's the number one thing. I mean, I think, you know, in the end, what I want is for people to be entertained. Uh-huh more than anything, um, to enjoy it, to feel they've met some kind of arresting and, and exciting people and, and had, a, had a thrill, mm-hmm. had a, you know, an exciting experience and hopefully been surprised a bit as well. You know, I love a book that is shocking and that kind of shakes me from my stupor a little bit uh, and gives me something that I don't expect because that's not common, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, we're all quite world weary and we've seen and consumed all kinds of media and uh, you know we're we're hard to surprise these days I think so I like to try and surprise people because I like to be surprised and you know hopefully I'd I'd like to make them think a little bit about fantasy generally and the the role the the purposes it serves for its audience and you know so maybe a few little uh, comparisons to the real world the nature of violence the nature of war the nature Hmm. of politics mostly just to be entertained, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, 
whether people have read the first law books, you know, five times, they've never read them before, I, I definitely recommend everyone go check out the new covers. They are absolutely gorgeous and, and read all of the, the books that are currently out there while we all eagerly await the upcoming trilogy. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.